So we're back to having the monitor off. Hopefully those technical issues have been fully fleshed out. If not, I'll know and have to redo part of this episode. And I hope that's not true, so we'll figure it out. So, relativity. Now, I've mentioned Nick Sagan a few times, and I told you I'd bring him up again. This is the last episode he actually personally did writing on, although there was some rewriting, of course. But this was Nick Sagan's episode. Uh, now I just realized that I'm actually an idiot because I have to turn my monitor back on. Don't worry, there's a good reason for it. Um, see, this episode is an interesting one to discuss. If I were to dissect this episode, you would be like, oh my god, this is super nitpicky. And there's a degree of honesty to that statement. I just, I just want to uh, share this quote. Uh, <clears throat> this is from Nick Sagan himself. And I quote, word for word, I don't think it's an episode that needs to be studied, per se, or ruminated upon. You just go with it like a roller coaster ride. So, with apologies, Mr. Sagan, but ruminating's my job, so... Sorry. So, <laughs> uh, I, I, that really made me laugh, that he specifically used that word. That's great. Um... So, yeah, uh, one thing I want to comment on, too, time travel has always made sense in my head. I don't know how to explain that, really. You know, some things just kind of click with you. Some things you just get. You're more talented at or you're more skilled at or, you know, whatever terminology you want to use. It's just something that works with you. And while there are certain th aspects of science, uh, quite a few aspects of science, actually, that I struggle with, time and time travel and time concepts has always just fit perfectly in my head. I mention that because uh, this episode makes the repeated joke that Janeway hates having to deal with time travel, um, which is funny considering how often she does it. And, of course, I mention that because this episode actually makes a surprising amount of sense to me, relatively speaking, if you look at it from the accordion perspective of time, which I'm not even to go into, uh, although I do want to mention one thing about that towards the end. I also find it interesting, if you will forgive me, uh, I did a look at it this once upon a time, I don't remember the exact numbers as of this point in time, haha, but uh, Enterprise, the original Enterprise, I should say, so the original series didn't really have a lot of time travel episodes, had a couple, uh, TNG had a few, DS9 had a few, Voyager had a lot, Enterprise had a ton. For some reason, even though it's like a thing, like everyone knows that, oh, Star Trek just does all sorts of time travel, that isn't really true. And and I mean, statistically isn't true. You know, there, there's actually very few time travel episodes relative to everything else. But the funny thing is the number of time travel episodes has basically never stopped going up over time. The more recent we get, the more time travel stuff we get. <laughs> Which I find uh, fascinating in its own right. Um... Of course, I could talk about time travel as a writing medium here, but I think this really isn't the best episode to talk about that in, so I'm not going to. I'm going to say one thing. There are several inconsistent paradoxes in this episode. To explain what I mean by that, and I have talked about this concept before, if you're going to have time travel, the only thing you have to do is be consistent with yourself. So you establish the rules of time travel, and you adhere to them. Simple idea, right? And yet, most of the time, writers tend to view time travel as a get-out-of-jail-free card. So they just do whatever. And so, in a given episode, or a given game, or a given movie, or a given book, it is actually sadly common that there will be a form of time travel which completely contradicts the other form of time travel. In other words, if I can use a horrible example of this, Endgame, also known as the last episode of Voyager, has inconsistent time travel within it. In some cases, the, the, para, the, the timeline is shifted and altered because of actions, and in other cases, it isn't. 
That's what I mean by inconsistent, by the way, literally in direct conflict with itself, with their own established rules. That's the trick to writing time travel. Just make your own rules and stay consistent with them. Star Trek, of course, if we look at the aggregate of the whole franchise, is completely inconsistent with how they view time travel. But I don't want to get too much into that. Um, So yeah, this episode doesn't really maintain self-coherence with its own rules of time travel. However, like Nick Sagan said, I don't want to rip this episode apart. I don't want to sound like I'm being too negative. I'm pointing it out from a writer's perspective. This is a fun episode. I like this episode a lot, actually. This is among my favorite season 5 episodes, and probably in like the top 20 or 30-ish of Voyager overall. Because it's just a fun, silly romp. There's some great humor. There's some great dialogue. There's some good back-and-forth directing was spot-on. The music was well-smoothed. And the overall approach to it was just, let's go have some fun. And I like what they did with it. They take concepts and played with it. This is actually a pretty good example of an Elseworld story, believe it or not. Because effectively nothing that happened in the episode happened other than the fact that it was removed from happening. In other words, it might as well have been an Elseworld story. You could, in other words, it's the same concept. You can do whatever because at the end the reset button is smashed. But again, I'm okay with the reset button being hit in this episode because it was a good ride in this case. Um, so, like, just, just thought I'd, uh, comment on that. I also want to give huge, huge, huge props to Foundation Imaging. They did a great job of Utopia Planitia in this episode. Amazing job. So there's a bit of a story behind that, too. Originally, uh, hang on, let's, let's, let's get my black screen up here. I just remembered I still have the monitor on. You'd be amazed how much I zone out on what's in front of my eyes when I'm talking like this. Um... Originally, they were told that we want the dock and we want the ship. But Foundation Imaging are huge Star Trek geeks, and this is Utopia Planitia. Now, any of you out there who are Star Trek geeks are like, dude, that's like the shipyard of the entire Federation. Awesome. It's also something we've never, ever seen before and never will again. This is the only time it's shown in the history of Star Trek. So the people at Foundation, on their own time, went in after hours to work on this and to really put into this. And they put together some concept sketches and some, and some frameworks, and they gave it to the uh, producers. The producer said, this looks great! And so instead of the one simple shot, they got the two much more elongated shots at the intro that were just a work of love uh, by, by the Foundation Imaging crew. And i got to admit, that just makes me grin uh, as a Star Trek geek myself. i got to admit, if I had the option, even though it's only like two shots in like 20 seconds of a show, to be able to toss my, my something I worked and labored and loved over uh, onto the big screen to be a part of Star Trek history, yeah, sold. I'd do that in a heartbeat. Um, I also want to comment on Lieutenant Carey. The, I've tried looking into this before, and I've never found out anything about this. It's so... The way it works, it almost can't be a coincidence. Lieutenant Carey, I will forgive you for not remembering him, is the kind of reddish-haired engineer who was in line to become chief engineer when B'Elanna took the job from him. And then we, like, don't see him at all. And then all of a sudden he's here, but in the past. We don't see him in any of the present scenes, just in the past. And he's never actually seen... And we've, this has happened before, I forget the episode. But there's another episode where he's seen in, in, like an, in, in the past, prior to these events. And it's just all of a sudden there's Lieutenant Carey. And then in a future episode, Lieutenant Carey will finally show up in the present. And, and the whole time I'm like, did the writers forget he existed? Or is there some kind of joke that Lieutenant Carey is secretly the doctor? And that's why we can only ever see him in the past or something. 
I, I don't know. I don't know what they were going with that, but I just felt like mentioning it because it's freaking weird. Anyways, so another thing I like about this episode is it firmly reestablishes that Janeway is a scientist, not an officer. I only re-emphasize this as, as like proof of concept of what I've been talking about for five years of episodes, basically. The idea that she should have been science officer or maybe first officer, but not the captain. I don't think that has ever really suited Janeway, and I really think it would have worked better if they had like this co-captaining thing. Uh, I understand they didn't want to break from the norm too much, because especially given how popular TNG had been, the, the soaring wave of popularity for TNG between Season 5 and 6, which led to the creation of Voyager and DS9, um, really limited both shows uh, in what they could do. And DS9 actually managed to break out of that because of basically... Uh, Lack of being popular. Weird circumstance. DS9 was less popular, and therefore the executives paid less attention to it and restricted it less so they could do more, whereas Voyager was actually pretty popular and, and was the flagship show of UPN as well. And so had a lot of executive focuses and was much more restricted on what they could do. How's that for awesome? God, I hate networking television. I am so... Uh, not even going there. Point being that they should have done something, in my opinion, and not adhered to the one captain, one first officer, one thing. They could have mixed it, mixed it up. There's no need for a standard command structure when you don't have a standard situation, and you're not going to have a standard situation for a long time. Just my opinion. Moving on. I like the intro. The teaser of this episode is very attention-grabbing. It's like, here's Utopia Planitia. Great shot. And then here's here's Janeway, clearly, you know, old old style of hair, clearly just having shown up on the bridge, or, or on the Voyager, excuse me, learning about the ship. There's the Admiral giving it away. Okay, got it. We're in the past. Cool. And considering we just did the episode 1159 just last week, the idea of a past episode is not exactly out of bounds. And then we see Seven of Nine. It's like, oh my god, it's Seven. But she's in a uniform and doesn't have her implants. Very attention-grabbing, excellently designed teaser. Um... It is kind of horrible to see how they treat the EMH in this episode. The Admiral and the Captain literally treat him like he's a hypospray. I know I've talked about that topic a bit. Don't worry, I'm not going to go into it now. Actually, I have a later episode I feel is a better time to really sit and talk about why the Federation were goddamn idiots when they made the EMH, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So... The, the idea of the weapon that destroys Voyager is interesting, if completely nonsensical. The idea that a weapon will, like, so the weapon goes off the moment it syncs up with time. With, like, you set it to a, a specific time, a specific microsecond or nanosecond or whatever they use uh, in time, and the moment it reaches that time, it completely uh, erupts and erases whatever it is that it's around it from space-time. It's an interesting concept for a weapon. The thing I find most interesting about it is it's heavily implied to be a Federation weapon. The kind of thing the Federation uses to completely eradicate certain things from the timeline. That's probably how Captain, or you know, former Captain Braxton got a hold of it, and also probably why they, as soon as they had a description of it, they had a full detailed schematic and exactly how it worked back on the Relativity. Because it was a Federation device, which probably should have given away some of that, but that's probably why they didn't even mention it. And again, I'm probably ruminating too much on the episode. Sorry, Mr. Sagan. And yet, I can't help but point out that Mr. Sagan's fingerprints are once again on this episode. Because once again, we see a viewpoint, a, a tiny little peek, and a fascinating idea that isn't really properly explored. The idea of a time ship. The idea of time police, basically. Now, this is not new. 
This is not the first time we've seen this. This is, in fact, technically the third time we've seen this, counting one incident on DS9 and one incident on Voyager prior to now. But actually seeing it in action, seeing how they function, seeing how uh, they have their own little rules and, and regulations, seeing there's one little nice touch. It's a very subtle thing. Every time they shift to a new time period, they throw up the shields. And it is implied, but never stated, that the ship itself is actually going to that location and that time in order to more directly interact with whatever it is they need to interact with. And I love that idea that the shields are part of what keeps them phased out or, you know, in some way so that they can't be detected, so they're cloaked, you know, something along those lines. Because every single time they shift timelines, they, they make a point of saying shields up. It's a nice thing. Also, forgive me for skipping ahead a little bit, uh, but about the peak into the future thing, they arrest Captain Braxton for what he does in the future. What is this, Minority Report? <laughs> I mean, come on. But all joking aside, that says a lot for how the legal system, for lack of a better term, the jurisdiction, the, the rules and regs of the future Federation work. That you actually have the authority to arrest a decorated individual who is of high rank because he will do something in the future. That is a very interesting justice system, and not one I think I would actually want to be a part of, if I'm being completely blunt. And it also says something about the severe pragmatism of the, of the time cops, for lack of a better term. I do admittedly like the idea of the people who police time. I, I like that concept. I find myself wondering if on many of the times where people have gone back in time and, and done time alterations to try and keep you know, history from being changed, if these people have actually been a part of that. And you might be like, well, what do you mean? We've never seen them. Exactly. It would not be hard if things were done properly for the, for the people like the, the crew of the Relativity to go back and interact in small ways and subtle ways to make sure things kind of guide in a given direction so that the timeline is secured. I find myself wondering how many of those previous incidents, you know, on DS9 and TNG on the original series, on Enterprise, uh, that these people have been involved in. Now, uh... The other thing I find, just again, going back to that pragmatism point, the fact that they can and will incarcerate and try someone based purely on the fact that they will do something in the future with access to time travel, of course, what does that say about that society? To me, that says the worst kind of dystopia, the pleasant dystopia, the kind where no one actually is is greater or lesser. I don't want to explain this in full detail because it's hard to. And it's one of those things where my mind just takes it 15 steps forward and I'm trying to explain all 15 of those steps from the first one. The Federation has always been a little bit too homogenized, for my opinion, because I don't like the Roddenberry future. I don't. I like the idealism of Star Trek. I like the handshake. I've talked about that before. I talked about that last week. Uh, I like the... Uh, I like the... the the, the technology, I like the post-scarcity, I like the paradise of Earth, I like a lot of the concepts of Star Trek, but one thing I don't like is that homogenization. And that really does come back to the Roddenberry box. I've talked about this before. It's not just an out-of-character thing with regards to writing, it's an in-character thing, too. There's an episode of TNG where a young boy's parents, mother specifically, dies on a mission. And he, the actor was not allowed to show tears or sadness be, you know, who plays the kid, because, per the Roddenberry ideal, we have evolved past that as humans. Something about that severely bothers me.
and I could talk extensively about that, and I don't want to because this is not that episode. Rather, what I'm trying to say is a society in which you can be tried and convicted for events you have, you will do, but actually never will do because of the fact that they've been interrupted, something about that society feels just a lot more in the box than I am comfortable with personally. Again, that sort of Sagan peek into the future. Um, quick little note, the Bridge of the Relativity is actually a redesign of the Bridge of the Enterprise-E. Really good set design on that one. Uh, I also admittedly am rather fond of that bridge because I play Star Trek Online. And uh, for the, in the interest of not spoiling, that's all I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> the next thing I want to talk about... Uh, okay, so yeah, there's the time ship comment. The self-diagnosis thing. People constantly say, oh, Star Trek invented the cell phone. Star Trek invented the personal computer and all that stuff. There is one thing that I cannot deny in any way that Star Trek definitely probably predicted. And that is using the internet for self-diagnosis. Diagnostic. For, for medical care, because Seven's like, I have this incredibly rare disease, and oh my god, and no, he, she has a slight aphasia. Uh, by the way, um, I'm sorry, Mr. Sagan, but I have to point out that you did something that's what I would consider bad writing in this episode. The, the limitation on time, temporal incursions thing. That can be explained away, but it's ridiculous and stupid. I'm just going to say it like that. It exists as a plot device. It exists as a form of a ticking clock. You need to make sure... You need to take agency away from the characters so that they are threatened. So there's a dilemma. I've talked about this many, many times. It is difficult to write a dilemma for characters when they have access to such incredible technology. And when you have access to time travel and a ship that can go anywhere in the galaxy pretty much like that then yeah, making, making this in any way difficult for them is actually quite, quite a challenge. Uh, I personally feel that they already had a proper difficulty and that they were trying to do so without being noticed. Again, the idea that you know in all those previous Star Trek episodes, they were there, just unnoticed. But no, that apparently wasn't enough. They needed to add this, you can only do so many temporal incursions, so you have only so many times to do it. So that's the first reason that plot device exists. The second reason is it explains why Braxton goes cuckoo. Blah! He goes, he literally gains a disease, a, a mental instability because of repeated time travel incidents. Because of Voyager, for that matter. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, sorry, I'm gonna have to call you out on that one. It's, it's a great episode, but really? Really? Anyways, um, so, I do like the ping pong effect, uh, towards the beginning with the, and it just freezes for a moment, and then Elix just goes, uh, I thought that was actually kind of nice. The space sickness uh, also was actually kind of a nice touch. Uh, the idea that per certain parts of their organs are literally moving out of phase with the other parts. Yeah, that would probably make you feel pretty damn nauseous. Uh, I have a note here, which I've already talked about, actually. It's about the inconsistent paradoxes that they use here. Again, I'm not going to really get into that. Um, I do, however, uh, I like... As weird as this sounds, I like that Jane remembers the flux several times. She remembers the temporal flux of an exact frequency and exact rating, and she remembers it from the original incursion back on the on the shipyards. And she's like, wait a minute. And nice point of consistency here. She, after the incursions, after they effectively change history, and Seven goes back and interacts with past Janeway, during, uh, when she interacts with Janeway uh, again, she remembers... 
uh, both Janeway and Braxton because of the fact that they had already done the incursion. So that's part of that Janeway's memories now. That was a nice bit of temporal consistency. Good job on that. Um, I also like the fact that they didn't wipe Janeway's mind. That would have bugged the crap out of me. That's the worst kind of reset button right there, when none of it ever happened for anyone and therefore has no significance for anyone. The fact that Janeway remembered, and Seven probably remembered as well, uh, but the fact that Janeway remembered all of these events means all of these events actually happened from her perspective and therefore have an impact on her her perspective, her personality, her future uh, concepts, you know, all that kind of thing. So at the very least, there is some significance uh, going forward to, to the uh, show as a whole. Um, I also find it funny that Seven is one of the very few individuals who you could approach with this kind of a situation and say, please deal with this, and she's like, okay. Uh, that's probably kind of vague, but what I mean by that is when previous Seven interacts with current Seven, previous Seven just says, no time, go after this, go. And current Seven says, okay. <laughs> and that's pretty much her reaction, okay. She's one of the extremely few people who could just process that and not be like, well, what about this, and why this, and how this, and what's going on with this, and... No, she's just... Got it. Go. I like that, and it's it's a good pick for that, admittedly. Um, also, I want to give props to this episode because Seven doesn't learn a lesson. Yes! Seven didn't learn a lesson, guys! Woo! Um, reintegration is the last thing I want to talk about. I don't want to go into a full discussion about that. I'm not even sure which direction that could go in because there's a lot to be said about that. But the fact that you can take three distinct individuals and reintegrate them into each other so that they all have each other's memories is kind of horrifying. And then you could try the remaining individual as if they were had done all the events of all three individuals. Well, that gets back to the justice thing. I've already talked about that. But the concept, the fact that reintegration is a thing, the fact that you can do that... It, strikes me as a very pragmatic reality of having so much time travel going on and also is completely inconsistent with the fact that there's that limit on time travel. We're not going to go into that again. Um, it also makes me wonder, though, how many times they've done this uh, in the past, relatively speaking. For example, it's heavily implied that Braxton has actually already been reintegrated with himself uh, from the events of... Future's End, I want to say, was the name of that two-parter. The, the Braxton who never experienced that timeline, being reintegrated with the Braxton who did, and therefore having the full memories of, of the events that happened. I also have to admit, that would be really, really disorienting for the individual, having three or four or eight or twelve distinct different memories all coinciding within there. And in some cases, probably technically making you a lot older, because all of a sudden you have 30 years of memories you never had before. That's kind of a horrifying thought to me, and I'm really not sure uh, if I'm okay with anybody having that kind of capacity. But whatever, I'm sure the idealistic, peace-loving Federation has no problems whatsoever uh, approaching that as if it was the, 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 the tool you're not supposed to use except under the very extreme and rare form of circumstances. Now that's actually all I got. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and chop this off, and we'll go ahead and see you next week for Warhead. See you around, guys.